0: This morning we are in Genesis chapter 38, <clears throat> Genesis 38, so turn there in your Bibles if you will. And how many, do you, how many of you know that the Bible is not a tame book? The Bible is not a tame book. Uh, often it doesn't say what we want it to say, uh, it is an honest to life account of the people of God throughout history. It's ugly parts of our history are there for everyone to see, right? And and we may be tempted to be offended by what we read in the Bible sometimes. Um, it can make us uncomfortable. It can even make us embarrassed. Chapter 38 in particular, for example, like what if... What if uh, unbelievers or what, this per- what if this person I'm witnessing to knew about Genesis chapter 38 and how embarrassing this is? It's like a soap opera, right? Uh, Genesis 38 is one of those chapters of the Bible that makes us cringe. And it should make us cringe, right? Uh, and yet at the same time, I don't think it's something we should be embarrassed about. We do cringe at the ugliness of human sinfulness, But it's not something we should be embarrassed about. Why? Because uh, as we are told in the New Testament, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for the people of God in all kinds of ways. And that applies to Genesis chapter 38. That applies to all of God's Scripture. It is profitable for us. This is the story of God's faithfulness to His unfaithful people. It's not always pretty, it's not always something we can be proud about, and yet this is, this is the story of God's faithfulness. It's our, sto- it's our story, it's our history as those who have followed Christ Jesus. Uh, incidentally, some people will, will look at this chapter and some, somehow justify Uh, their own viewing of certain, or or listening or reading of certain media, because they would say, well, the Bible has all kinds of, you know, salacious material in it. And therefore, they would say, so I can therefore, with liberty in Christ, I can watch and partake of of this movie, or of this show, or read this book, or that book. Um, But notice how, even as we read through 38, it is a salacious story. It is a kind of offensive, embarrassing story. And yet, the author of Genesis 38 doesn't Kind of linger on the the uh, salacious details just for the purpose of entertainment, right everything that is here is here for a reason. He is actually weaving an amazing story by the telling of this history. It is here ultimately for our upbuilding for our edification for our uh, even for our example in a contrast sort of way right it 's not a positive example for us uh, and so yeah, read the Bible. Yeah, you don't shy away from reading the Bible. But don't use chapters like this as an excuse to indulge in other sorts of, of worldliness or entertainment. Incidentally, there's also a magazine on the back table. Air uh, Ministries puts out table talk, and we provide those occasionally for you out on the back. And there's a, an issue on entertainment. So it'll give you a good biblical understanding of how we should view entertainment. So with that said, let's jump into Genesis 38, and I'm not going to shy away from reading it. If you want to carry your kids out, you can do that. They'll read it later when you're not looking, right? So uh, Genesis 38, let's read that together. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chazib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground, so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house, till Shallah my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, she was daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, She took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shalah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adullamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of this place, Where is the cult prostitute who was at Naaim, at the roadside? And they said, No cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place um, said, No cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, Let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify who these are the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah. And he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, and she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Let us pray and ask God to bless the reading and preaching of his word. Heavenly Father, um, as we come to this text, we may have a lot of confusion or difficulty understanding what you would have for us in this. We pray that you would use this time to feed your people that you would use this time to uh, convict us of our own sins, that we would would reject them, that we would repent of our sins and turn again to Christ. We pray that you would use this word to grow us in our understanding of your faithfulness, in our understanding of your sovereignty, and in our understanding of your grace to us, which is in Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it was about 200 years ago that a man named Sir Walter Scott wrote a poem about a man named Lord Marmion, a tale of love and deception. In the story, Marmion works with an immoral nun, a really dramatic type of story, an immoral nun, to frame another man named Ralph de Wilton. So Marmion wants this guy out of the scene because he has designs on his fiancée, Clara, declare. But once De Wilton is out of the scene, his non-friend proves to be deceitful herself. She can't be trusted. So she turns him over. She she uh, ultimately ends up rescuing De Wilton who had been uh, exiled from the area. And then Marmion is on a battlefield and sees De Wilton there, and he knows he's been found out. He knows that he he has been turned in by his friend who framed him. And then he utters these words, Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. See, his, his deceit had ended up coming back on his own head. You've heard those words before probably. These are the words of a person who looks back on his lies, on his sins, on his deceptions, and he realized somebody else has done it right back to him. It's come back on his own head. And it's funny how we often can't see the messes that we've made with our own sins until something like that happens. It's, it's funny how we can't see the mess we've made with our own sins until the damage has already been done, and then there's nothing we can do to repair it. And in our story this morning, Judah makes a big, stinking mess of his lies and deceptions. His family is a wreck. His relationship with God is almost non-existent. And we could almost put these words on the lips of Judah when he recognizes he's been outdone by Tamar. Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. Well, there are four main acts in this story. I'm going to take a page out of Tracy's book and kind of go at it a scene at a time. Act 1 in Act 1, the stage is set, and we see just the background of Judah's wickedness. You see in verse 1, and each of these acts are kind of marked by a different segment in time. So, verse 1, it happened at that time, uh, speaking of around the time after they had sold Joseph into slavery. Act 2, in Act 2, the plot thickens, and we see Tamar's deceptive plan in verse 12 in the course of time after many days. In Act act 3 there is a dramatic twist and Tamar reveals Judas' sin for everybody to see. Verse 24 says about three months later. Again marked by a different segment of time. And then in the last act, Act 4 the story comes to a close with the birth of twins. Verse 27 when the time of her labor came. I hope you've recognize, though, even in the reading of the story, uh, that the main theme has to do not with, with sexual ethics or these sorts of things as it may have been preached. Maybe you've heard it preached along those lines before. The main theme, even though God is not even mentioned in this passage, is the faithfulness of God. Is the faithfulness of God in the midst of wicked, wicked sin, twisted sin. Right? God is faithful. To keep his promises, generation after generation, even among those people who have rejected him and rebelled against him and have done all kinds of deceitful and wicked things. Let's look at Act 1 together. The setting of the sage in Judah's wickedness. We see this in verses 1 through 11. So these, these terms that Judah went down and turned aside, and who he turned aside to? He turned aside to the Canaanites, the very people that God had told his people not to intermarry with, not to have uh, certain associations with. And this is a, an instance where we should recognize this is not good. Judah going down away from his family, turning aside from his family to the Canaanites. He is separating from his own people, and even worse, he is joining himself together with another people. He, in fact, marries a Canaanite woman. The very thing God tells his people not to do. Batshua. What is the problem with intermarrying with the Canaanites? Well, some have, have pointed back to the Old Testament and said that um, interracial marriage is wrong. See, look at all these examples in the Old Testament of God telling his people not to intermarry with other people groups. Well, that would be a huge uh, case in missing the point, of course. The the point here is uh, God didn't want interfaith marriage. He didn't want his people marrying with those who worshipped idols and other gods. Why? Because then they are going to be polluted in their own faith. They were to be... Remain distinct as the people of God who worshiped this one true God, and any uh, intermarrying with people of other faiths would necessarily water down their faith would cause them to maybe uh, join together this this new God and their one true God, and it would be idolatry and so <clears throat> you can see Judah already turning aside from the God of his fathers, turning aside from this this God who had made a covenant, a promise to his people. Ultimately, what we see here and throughout this story, and even in Judah's sons as well, is that their natural desires are greater than their spiritual affections. You know you have a problem when your natural desires often or always overcome your spiritual affections. And this is the case with Judah time and time again. He has three sons... With this wife, Batshua, Er, Onan, and Shelah. So Er marries Tamar, but the scripture tells us that he was killed for his wickedness. Now, the author doesn't tell us what exactly his wickedness uh, was. We might assume that it was some some serious sin that he was committing, perhaps in the public public view of everyone. Everyone knew he was committing. This sin, But this is the first instance of God putting someone to death directly because of their sin. Onan marries Tamar then. As within the culture, this was, would have been a, a practice in order to further the seed of the firstborn son. And so a brother-in-law would then marry the widowed woman and... Uh, They would have offspring together, and they would be counted as the first son's offspring. So they would get the uh, firstborn's share of the inheritance. So Onan wants nothing to do with that. He knows they won't be considered his children. They'll be considered Ur's children. And so he avoids the chance that she'll get pregnant. He agrees to marry her, but he avoids to fulfill his responsibility to have offspring for his brother. Now the purposes of this kind of um, this cultural practice um, are a couple of reasons. One I can think of is that this extends the offspring of the brother. It was very important for a man and his wife to produce offspring, to have a lineage, to have descendants. But it was also a, a sort of provision for the widow. It would take care of the woman who had lost her husband. It would provide uh, for her needs. It would provide care for her. And so by rejecting this responsibility, Onan is rejecting this cultural practice to extend his brother's offspring and to care for his brother's widow. Again, we see his natural desires were greater than his spiritual affections, greater even than his familial responsibilities. He was wicked to the Lord. What he did was wicked. And so the Lord also puts him to death. This reminds us of the holiness of God. That Ur and Onan could commit a sin and be instantly put to death for their sins. It reminds us that sinfulness against God doesn't deserve sympathy from God. Rebelliousness against God doesn't deserve his restraint. That should almost uh, send chills down our spines because we know how often we sin against God. We know how often we break His holy law. What if God were to, to treat us as He treated Ur and Onan or others in the Bible who encountered this holy God and received His wrath? The truth of the matter is this is what each one of us has deserved by our own sinfulness. Nobody knew about Onan's sin, and yet the Lord struck him down. Have you recognized this about yourself, about your own sin, that what your sin deserves is greater than you could bear to pay? And it's because God is holy. That means He is pure. He is sinless. He is without fault. And we, by our sin... We haven't just sinned against others around us. We have sinned against the greatest of all possible beings in the universe. So the penalty that we deserve for a certain crime is weighed by the quality or the value of the one sinned against. Have you ever thought about that? If you stomp a little ant, you know, by accident, what penalty do you deserve do you even deserve a penalty if you kind of torture it like kids do? They shouldn't do that. That's wrong. That's one of God's creation. And yet we recognize it's, a, it's an insect, right? They're not going to pay a, a penalty for that. Well, what happens if this uh, kid grows up to a teenager and then he maliciously kills uh, an animal, a dog? Well, then there's going to be some consequences for that because the value of the animal is greater than the value of, perhaps, say, an insect. Well, what happens if he grows into a young man and he hasn't learned his lesson and he kills another human being? Well, now we know he's a murderer. God's Word tells us murderers um, should suffer a great penalty. In the Old Testament, it was the penalty of death. Well, how much greater then is our sin, even what we might consider small sins, about the all-powerful God of the universe? This is why our sin deserves such a great penalty because the one we are sinning against is of infinite value and worth. This is what we deserve for our sins. Well, look at Judah's words to Tamar. After his two sons die, she's left a widow He says remain a widow in your father's house until Shelah grows up. Judah here is abdicating his responsibility as Tamar's father-in-law. Pure and undefiled religion, James says, is to care for widows and orphans in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And yet Judah does quite the opposite. He stains himself by marrying into a Canaanite family. And then he abandons this widow. He abandons his responsibility to this young woman who had married his son. She's widowed and he has cast her out. So Act 1 leaves us with a few problems. Judah, who is one of uh, Jacob's prominent sons, and we'll see that he becomes more prominent, as Genesis goes on, he is uh, has a wicked family. It's full of deception and lies. We just came from the story when Jude, uh, Judah and his brother sold Joseph into slavery. His family is a wreck. It is a mess. Not only that, though, he's like a deadbeat dad. He hasn't taught his sons well. They are wicked. They follow either follow after his own wickedness, or he's just passive in in pointing out their sins and raising them up in the Lord and the Lord's law. And he has left this widow destitute and abandoned. Go back to your father's house. I don't want to We just get you out of the way. I don't want to deal with you. So we wonder, will Judah get away with this? His sons have been killed for their wickedness. Why is he getting to go free? Will he get away with deceiving not only his father, but now Tamar too? It turns out he never intended to give Shulah to Tamar. Or we also are left wondering, how will the line of Judah's family continue? Remember, Judah's family is a part of the covenant family of God. And God had promised to Abraham, your descendants will be like the stars in the sky. Your descendants will be like the sand. Um, you can't even number them, if, even if you would try. And there will be from your offspring one who will come. Or maybe we wonder why should his line continue, <laughs> right? The promise was to Abraham. He has others who continue, uh, can continue the offspring, can continue the family. Maybe it's just okay for this line, part of the line to cease. It's so wicked and ugly. We also wonder what will happen to Tamar. Will she be left a widow forever in her father's? house what about justice for her now we turn to act two in which the plot thickens tamar's deception is what we see here so in the course of time many days had passed Uh, these first 12 verses take up a lot of time 20 years or so so the first act sets the stage giving a broad overview of the situation and now the story slows down and we are able to focus in on a particular important event in the lives of Judah and Tamar. Judah's wife dies. And he goes through the normal rituals of grieving, and then he goes to an annual celebration. The author kind of puts it here really close together. It says, if he mourns, okay, now I'm I'm good. I'm ready to go to this annual celebration, the sheep shearing in Timnah. So he goes with his buddy Hira, the Adullamite. But Tamar has been waiting and watching. You you think about the story and you think about how methodical her approach is throughout the story. She is ready. Apparently she's had eyes watching uh, Judah eyes and ears around his house. This is not, doesn't seem to be an impulsive plan. She has thought this out, and she is ready. She has her costume ready. She knows the best location to go to entrap Judah, and she quickly goes about getting things ready. The key to the motivation behind her plan, I think, is in verse 14. At the end of verse 14, it says, For she saw that Shelah was grown up, And she had not been given to him in marriage. She had recognized that she had been deceived by Judah. And her plan works exactly as she had planned it. It goes off without a hitch. Judah lusts after her, but he doesn't recognize who she is. They make a business transaction and Judah gives a pledge to show that he's good for his payment. Notice Tamar knows exactly what she wants for a pledge. His signet And cord and his staff; these would be very important items, which would make it easy to identify the owner. She is running this to perfection. And by the way, how stupid is Judah? What is he doing? His sense has been overcome by natural desire, and perhaps we could even say this: his sense, his natural common sense, is being overshadowed in the judgment of God. This is a judgment of God that he is not thinking through clearly. His senses are dulled, and so he falls for her trick quickly. Well, Later, Judah sends payment by a friend, but the prostitute is nowhere to be found. In fact, none of the locals even knew about a prostitute in the area. This is all information that we know what's going on, but Judah is still in the dark. And it's at this point, Judah starts to feel a bit of fear about the shame that could come for his actions. Look at verse 23. Let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. V- very important items, and yet what's more important to Judah is his public reputation. Notice what uh, fear Judah had versus what fear he should have had. He feared his name would be mocked. He feared his family would be shamed by people finding out about his f- sexual immorality. Right? There was a great fear of Judah. He should have feared the holy wrath of God against sin. He should have feared becoming stained with the sin of sexual immorality. He should have feared God. He feared people and losing his own reputation. He should have feared God and losing his very life. Right, Judah, you should have thought of this a long time ago. You should have thought about the shame of this action, not simply by what it does to your reputation, but by who it says you are. By what it says about your character. And by what you will have to pay for your sins to God. Doesn't seem like we do the same thing often, though, with our sins. We're, we're often more concerned about getting caught in our sin. We're more concerned about the shame that it will bring on our own reputation or our family rather than the fact we are sinning against our God who created us, who made us for His glory. Isn't that a shameful thing? That we would be more concerned about what other people think about us than our own sin against God. Well, why do we do that? Why do we, why do we try to hide our sin and our only fear is if we can get caught or not? Well, often it may seem like God is absent. Like we can get away with it, right? There are no, maybe we don't see any consequences to our sin and so we can just continue on in certain ways with our anger or with our deceit, with our lies, with our lust. With in any number of ways, we think, well, God, you know, He's, he's not really going to, to do anything about it, and so we can just get away with it. Maybe we think no one will know. Maybe we think as long as we're not harming anyone else, then we're okay, and it's really not a big deal. Well, that's exactly what Judah was thinking. This is not harming anyone. Tomorrow uh, she's willing to go along with this. She's getting something out of it, and so everything's fine. No, no harm done. Well, of course, hopefully you recognize there are a couple problems with that. Sin, first and foremost, is offense against a holy God. So your hidden sins or the sins that you think aren't harming anyone, the sins that you think you're okay with, they are an offense, a stench in the nostrils of God who is holy and righteous. But not only that, sin harms others even if you suppose that it hasn't harmed anyone else. Even if you suppose, well, it's only affecting you, this isn't really affecting anyone else. That is a very weak view of sin. To think that you, you, could, you could get away with it, to think that, well, since no one else knows about it, it's not harming anyone else, well, then we're fine. That's a very unbiblical view of sin, and it's a very low view of what sin is. You can't suppose that your sin isn't affecting others. Right? It's like a, a piece of rot. It's like rot in a piece of wood that gradually grows and spreads throughout the whole piece of wood. Your sin affects those you love in ways you couldn't even imagine. Your sin is ugly to God, offensive to God, and it does affect others in amazing ways that you wouldn't even realize. And yet often we, we do this. We may even sin with the knowledge that God will forgive us in his grace, which is basically called antinomianism, against the law. You're sinning with, you're going into a sin, you're tempted to sin in a certain ways, and a little voice in your head says, well, I know that God will forgive me if I still do this. And so then you plunge right into it. That is such a dangerous place to be in, isn't it? It is true, God will forgive you if you are in Christ. That is not a motivation to sin, brothers and sisters. That is a motivation to live for His glory, to reject sin. And to live with gratitude for what Christ has done for us. Well, Act 2 leaves us in suspense. Tamar has Judah's personal items. Judah is in a vulnerable position. What will Tamar's next move be? What will she do with those items? What will happen to Judah? And so we move three months ahead in verse 24. Here comes a dramatic twist in the story. Verses 24 to 26. Tamar has been at her father's household and she's just been biding her time, right? She's been hiding away Judah's belongings and just biding her time. It's almost as if She has them ready and available if the time should come when she needs them. Word reaches Judah that she is pregnant, obviously by immorality because she's not married. She's supposed to be in widowhood. And in their minds, it is because she has committed prostitution. And notice the directness of Judah's words in verse 24. Bring her out and let her be burned. No other words. This is all we get from the author here. Bring her out and let her be burned. She should die for her sin. You wonder what he's thinking, actually. Suddenly he's a righteous man. Suddenly he has no faults and he can demand her death because of her own sexual immorality. Maybe he thinks this is a convenient way to get rid of her. Like he already already sent her back to her father's house. He's abdicating his responsibility. Well, if he can just totally get rid of her, then he won't feel in his conscience anything about neglecting her. It's interesting too, though, how this reflects back on us in a similar way. How often and eager we are to condemn other people for sins that we commit ourselves. How many times have... My kids raise their voice and I really get on them for raising their voices and forget about two days ago when I raised my voice and no one held me accountable for that. This is hypocrisy, right? This is what we see in Judah. It's what we see in our own lives. So Tamar lays down her cards at the exact moment she needs to. At the last moment, as they were bringing her to be burned, to be killed for her sins. She mentions, oh, by the way, I have the items which belong to the person who is the father of this child. I have these things. Can, can you please identify these things for me? So you, you have to imagine Judah at that moment. What his face must have looked like, the the turmoil, what what he must have been feeling inside. It was a gotcha moment. He he probably could not believe it, but then he recognized it. He realized he had been beat. Oh, what a tangled web we weave. Judah identifies his things, and they identify him. He's the one. If this is this is Judas. You are the man moment. And then when you hear that in the Bible, that is not a good thing, right? That's when David uh, heard about this story of one who had been treacherous. And he says, let him come here. He should pay for what he has done. And Nathan turns to him, you are the man. You're the one who's done it. Recognize your own sin. This is Judah's you-are-the-man moment. You've probably seen, maybe you've seen those videos online of instant karma where somebody does something mean or stupid and they get payback instantly. Well, we don't believe in karma, right? There are consequences to your sin. And this wasn't exactly instant, but it's amazing the irony of how this happens. He gets his judgment here, it seems. He is identified as the man. And look at Judah's words. Tamar is more righteous than I am, since I did not give her to my son Shelah. So notice two things here. It's at this moment that Judah, he at least acknowledges his sin. I mean, what else? You could say, what else is he going to do? You know, he's been found out. He's been shamed. So I don't know how much... You know i don 't know how much we credit we can give to Judah for admitting this, but he does at least acknowledge his sin in withholding Shelah and not fulfilling his responsibilities to Tamar, a weak and helpless widow, and he shoves her off and he lies to her deceives her about giving her his son Shelah, but also he calls her more righteous, he calls her more righteous what is what does he mean by this? How should we understand? This, that she is more righteous than him. Well, we have a few options, so we'll think about these together. One option could be that Tamar is simply righteous in her actions. What do you think about that? She stands up, uh, we could say, to oppression for the sake of the covenant people so that their offspring would pre- be preserved as God had desired. We could say Tamar is more righteous because she fulfilled Judah's responsibility for him even though it was deceptive. Maybe Tamar is more righteous merely in the fact that her sin was lesser than Judah's. All right, his, his sin was greater than hers of deception and immorality. In other words, the lesser of two evils here. I, here's where I, I come at it. Here's kind of what I think is going on. Tamar has committed sinful acts, okay? But in this situation, the author is focusing more on her heroism, perhaps even unwittingly, but focusing more on her heroism, preserving the covenant seed of God. And actually, we could say the author doesn't nicely wrap it up and put it on a bow for us and settle all the ambiguities. Right? We're left kind of confused. How is Tamar called more righteous? They both just get away with what they've done? I mean, what what are the consequences for their sin? What where's the justice? What what's going to happen as a result? Well, often we try to give answers where the Bible doesn't give us answers. The Bible doesn't tell us here all the ins and outs of, well, did she commit sin? Was what she did bad? Was it okay what she did? The focus here more is more on the faithfulness of God in preserving his people, preserving his promise, despite all of these terrible and sinful actions of his people. Notice that this act ends, though, in an admission by Judah and perhaps even the beginnings of a transformation of Judah and his life. It says he did not know Tamar anymore. So, in other words, he didn't take her as a wife, and he didn't have sexual relationships with her anymore. He recognized his sin, and it appears he may be turning in a different direction. And we'll, we'll come back to this later when we see his interactions with Joseph as well. Well, the last act of the story is this resolution to Mars twin boys. Fast forward six months, the time of labor comes, and surprise, there are twins. And it's an interesting birth. One boy sticks out his hand. Uh, and the midwife marks it as the firstborn tying a red, a scarlet thread on his hand. But then the other boy emerges from the womb, overtaking his brother. And we've seen this before, actually, right? Uh, not quite in the same way, but an older brother being marked with red. In Esau's case, he was marked by red stew. He was, It says he was red all over. Younger, His younger brother uphen, upends this older brother in order to receive the blessing of the firstborn. So this is significant. This should clue us in that that God is going to do something interesting with this family and with these two boys. As Jacob received the blessing and was counted as the promised seed, so now Perez is counted as the firstborn. And through him will come this promised offspring of Abraham. And later on there will be another widow outside the covenant family of God. And yet she expressed great faith and devotion to the God of Israel. And her name was Ruth. With great heroism, she helped to preserve the promised seed through having children with her husband, Boaz. Let's look at that for a moment. Ruth, chapter 4, verses 13 to 22. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse and the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Now you see where this leads to, right? This leads to the great king David, who in many ways made Israel what it had never been before, establishing his kingdom. And yet even David, as great as he was, a man after God's own heart, wasn't ultimately the one that his people were waiting for. He wasn't ultimately the promised offspring who would crush the head of the serpent, who would make all things right, who would die for the sake of his people. There would be another great king to come, and his kingdom would be established forever. And of course, we know when we read in the genealogy of Matthew, Chapter One, One through six, and sixteen through twenty one that this offspring is none other than the great King, the greater King, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. Christ is not only the offspring of Judah, you could consider him the anti Judah at least in his sins what judah he 's what Judah should have been. He was surrounded by wickedness, but he never partook of it. He was surrounded by stains. Uh, of immorality throughout his life, and yet he was never stained by it. He never shirked his responsibility to care for the poor. We especially see him going out of his way to care for widows, for women, for those who were poor, for the the outcasts of society. He never took advantage of women. Even as sinful women approached him, he treated them with love and respect. He never treated them as objects to use at his own disposal, but loved them and pointed them to their ultimate need of repentance and faith in him. All this, and yet he still suffered the penalty. He still suffered the shame of our sins. He suffered the punishment that we deserved. He was treated as Judah should have been treated because of his sin, and he was treated as you should have been treated because of your sin. He took all the shame, all the the sin upon his own shoulders when he died on the cross for sinners. If you were in Christ, he paid for your sins fully when he died on the cross. And he rose from the dead, overcoming sin and death and every evil thing. If you haven't, Turn from your sins and trusted in Jesus Christ, I invite you to do that, to, to reject your sins, to change your mind about your sins, and then trust in Jesus in His death for your sins, in His resurrection. Trust in Him to save you, and you will be saved. He paid for our sins on the cross and rose from the dead. It is speaking of, of Jesus here. This is pointing ultimately to the offspring. Who would save us from our sins. I know I've gone over, but bear with me a few more a couple more minutes. I have just a few lessons. What else can we gain from this, this passage? Just three lessons. One, God often uses the most unlikely people to carry his plan forward. Often the lowly, the despised, the rejected, the outcast. He uses often the most unlikely people. So you're thinking maybe you're too sinful? Um, you're thinking maybe you're too broken, you're too weak, you don't have anything to offer, that God would use you for his plan. Well, if you you think you're too sinful, repent of your sin first, so you're, you're not excusing that. But then recognize how God uses sinful people, and he gives them his grace, and he indwells them by his spirit, and then he uses them for great and amazing things. And consider how God used Tamar in that story, even though she was an outcast, she was rejected, she was oppressed. And it's, ultimately, it's not about us, right? That's why Paul says in Second Corinthians, we have this treasure, this gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. We have it where? In these jars of clay, in these vessels of clay, nothing, right? In order to show that all, the all-surpassing power is from God and not for us not from us. So if God can use Judah and Tamar in all their twisted circumstances for his glory, how much more can he use you and me who have the fuller revelation of Jesus Christ in the gospel and who have God within us in the Holy Spirit. Right? Amen. Amen. He uses his sinful, broken, weak people for amazing things. Second, God will work his plan regardless of the actions of his people. He's a freight train that cannot be stopped by anything. God will work his plan regardless. He will carry out his promises regardless of the faithfulness or faithlessness of his people. Usually the faithlessness of his people, right? People are not thereby relieved of their responsibilities, however. And sin is not excused, however. Because of God's sovereignty. Don't use that as an excuse to indulge in your own sin. But know this. God will carry forth his plan. It's just what side are you going to be on? And third and finally, God's favor comes from grace alone. Grace alone. It's not one's own personal righteousness that we, because of that that we receive God's favor. It's not because you're good enough or because you pretend to be that good in front of other people. You have a certain reputation. Judah deserved punishment. Our forefathers throughout the Old Testament, are, we often know them as examples to us. More often than that, they are known as negative examples for us, how we ought not to behave, and yet we still do it. Right, None of us will be saved or receive God's favor by our own personal morality or righteousness because we don't have what it takes. Neither does God's favor come from one's own heritage or ancestry. Judah's descendants would be looking on this with shame, not with pride. They, they had nothing to boast about. That, oh, our father was Judah. From him came the promised offspring. There's nothing to be proud about in this story. Judah received mercy from God simply because God is merciful, not because he deserved it. So, brothers and sisters, let us rest, not in our own works, not in our our, our personal morality, not in what we think we could do for God, not in our fathers or our grandparents or the heritage that we have. Let us rest in Jesus Christ Christ crucified for us and God's grace for us in Christ. Amen. Amen. Amen.